Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I'm not, I'm not preaching today, but uh, I did want to introduce uh, Matt. I'm very grateful for uh, him. So, and, and I'm thankful for those this week. I, I was away the bulk of this week uh, at Mount Monadnock Bible Conference Center and uh, just spent some time studying, reading, praying, just kind of getting refreshed in the Lord. Um, I know how important that is for me to do, it, not only as a human being, but, but, but as a pastor, and it was a just a blessed week, and for those who prayed, I appreciate that. Thank you for that, uh, and I'm thankful for uh, Matt uh, filling in so that I didn't have to uh, prepare for a sermon this week as well while I was doing everything else, um, and it's, it's a privilege to kind of share the pulpit uh, as it is. Um, you know, one of the greatest joys uh, an, an elder in the church, a pastor, a preacher can have is seeing others begin to get their footing, begin to get experience. Um, it's, it's a privilege, you know, as, as John and Elise shared about going to Japan, and I know that God has been working that in them far longer than their time here at Calvary, um, but to be a part of their preparation, to send them, uh, such an honor and a privilege, uh, Mike and Jenny, um, Schultz will be praying for them at the close of this service as they're uh, heading out for their three-week exploratory trip to Indonesia. And again, to just see, to, to be a sending church, um, to be raising up missionaries, raising up future uh, pastors, elders, preachers, whatever it might be, or just raising up godly mature people that are going to serve in whatever capacity uh, God uh, directs them to is such an honor and uh, so I'm, I'm thankful for Matt. I've been meeting with him for the last uh, three to six months. And uh, after he's done, you can decide whether that's long enough or not. Um, but uh, Matt, go ahead and come on up. Thanks for being willing to preach today. How are you guys doing well? So uh, I want to start off our time today and with a quote from, from Richard Robinson in his book, An Atheist Valued. In the Christian religion, though perhaps not in any other, we frequently find a concept of God that is contradictory and therefore corresponds to nothing. That is the concept formed by the following three propositions, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-loving, and there is much misery in the world. A God who is all-powerful but left much misery in the world wouldn't be all-loving. And an all-loving God in a world containing much misery wouldn't be all-powerful. A world containing a God who was both all-powerful and all-loving would contain no misery. Here we have a mathematical proof proving that a common religious doctrine that anyone who is confident that he frequently comes across misery in the world may conclude with equal confidence that there is no such thing as an all-powerful or an all-loving God. 
And this mathematically disposes of official Christianity as has long been known. Today, I want to take us through a journey to examine this idea of pain, suffering, and misery. And I don't know where you are, but maybe you came in here today and you can identify with Richard Robinson's quote. Maybe he went a little bit too far in some of the things he said, but it's about time somebody finally said what you were thinking. Because how can an all-loving and an all-powerful God permit and allow torment and pain to come to his people? Maybe we can personalize this a bit further. How could an all-loving God allow me to go through hardships or difficulties? whether it be financial, relational, problems in the home or in my marriage. Maybe a long bout of singleness has caused loneliness and depression, and you frequently find yourself discouraged. Perhaps an unfavorable doctor's report confirms your situation is no longer temporary, but permanent. How does a loving God allow my friend or my family member to become terminally ill and even pass away? Why didn't an all-powerful God show up when I seemingly needed him the most? God, sometimes I question if you even care at all. Today, I want to talk about this idea of misery, not in an attempt to discount it, but to provide a viewpoint of God's purpose through it. Suffering and trials will continually break our hearts. But my hope is that today, through my words, it will give you the strength to know that our spirits will never be crushed in Christ. Because as believers, pain and suffering are a part of our story. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9 speaks of the fact that hardships were no surprise to the early church. And and although they faced physical torment, they knew that they had a purpose in which was living that they were living for, which was far greater than this world. Paul says it: we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul reminds us that in all situations, we have a God who's willing to provide us hope and who does so. And even in our darkest hours, he is there. There is no greater example of this than that of Jesus Christ, who is fully acquainted with the physical, the emotional, and just the the pain and suffering in which we encounter in this physical life. But as Christians, we're called to share in the sufferings of Christ and not be exempt from them. Yet we find hope in the work of Jesus and that whatever we encounter in this life, he experienced it to the fullest. Let's pray. God, I ask that as I speak today, you bring clarity and understanding to our places of pain. God, I ask that you bring revelation to us as we see the times that you've carried us through our difficult situations and our seasons. 
that as we're being transformed from glory to glory, we know that you are here. And although it's a slow process, you give boldness and strength to all who call upon your name. Let us forever be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen. It's very interesting how Jesus frequently refers to himself as a good shepherd. Even though his industry was um, being a woodworker and a carpenter, the, the idea of Jesus being a shepherd has been depicted by many artists. They show Jesus tending to, a sh- tending to sheep or, or caring for them in some type of capacity. And before I get too far into this analogy, I want to clarify, I'm not a farmer. Um, I don't do anything with sheep. Um, although I love a lamb, good lamb chop every now and then, can I get an amen on that one? Like, um, but in terms of actually knowing too much about him, my experience is pretty thin. Um, I've been to a petting zoo once or twice, um, and, and honestly, I don't even really wear wool on a regular basis. So it's not that I'm trying to fleece you on this one, but I will say take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I, I've heard that when sheep would often wander astray, the shepherd would break their legs and carry the animal until it was fully healed. And during this time, the sheep would actually build a dependency and trust upon the shepherd. The sheep would rely on the shepherd for protection, for provision, and it would even grow an affinity towards its caretaker in the process. Once healed, the sheep would follow the shepherd around for the remainder of its life because it had full confidence that the shepherd could be trusted and provide for them. As we see this image that the very person being the shepherd entrusted with the well-being of the animal actually permitted a difficult circumstance for the sheep to bring about a beneficial result. And my point in this analogy is, is don't trust me with taking care of your sheep. You know, I said something about lamb chops, breaking their legs. You know, it doesn't seem like that's what I was going for. But my point here is that God being our shepherd will allow and even permit difficult scenarios in our lives so that we learn a dependency on our Father. Because God is constantly looking to build our faith so that we can further trust in him. Just as we saw the shepherd permit hardship for the sheep, to produce a certain result, we're going to see Jesus permit pivotal circumstances in the lives of the ones he loves so that they might further develop a dependency and trust in him. As we read in John 11 today, I, I want to see this analogy and view, it, um, and view it through this text. So Jesus, we're looking at John 11, which is the story of Lazarus, and Jesus is a, is a close friend with this, with this family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And they're, they're a tight-knit group. But the text even describes how Mary wipes perfume off of Jesus' feet. And I'm not sure how you even have that idea. But I will say that I'm certainly not going to do that for somebody unless I love them. 
and I'm not going to allow them to do that for me unless there's an adoration there. The text goes on, and I want to pause on verse 3. Jesus gets a message saying, the one you love is sick. And the Bible doesn't even use Lazarus's name here, but Jesus knows exactly who the messenger is talking about. And if I get a text message, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to reply with, yes, I'm on my way, but who are we talking about here? Jesus knows who it is. As the text continues, we gain an image of Jesus that is honestly, it's hard to imagine. Because Jesus, after getting this message, stays where he, uh, where he is for two more days. Lazarus is dying, and Jesus does nothing. And Jesus has even healed people without being in close proximity to them. He doesn't need to be there to do a healing or to perform a miracle. And yet, he doesn't even do that. I want to imagine this from Martha and Mary and even Lazarus' perspective when the messenger comes back without Jesus. That heart sink moment you feel when you witness the very object of your faith seemingly disappoint you. How many times have we felt this type of discouragement with the Lord? When our prayers seem void, empty, and even worse, God is seemingly silent and we are forced to face our trials alone. In verse 14 and 15, we start to see the purpose in why Jesus waited. Jesus tells the disciples very plainly that Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I am not there. So that you might believe. In the Greek, there's actually no word for belief. It's just simply to have faith in or to put trust in. So if we read this verse again, he tells the disciples, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I'm not there. So that you might further trust in me. It's remarkable what Jesus is saying. And so if you haven't been paying attention up until this point, this is where I want to draw you back in and say that Jesus' actions signify that he's willing and will even permit sorrow and grief in the lives of the ones he loves so that we might further trust in him. I can imagine the disciples saying to Jesus, like, Lord, you're willing to allow hardship to come to Mary and Martha and even permit physical agony in the life of Lazarus so that we might trust you more? It's really that important. In the verse, we see that Jesus will leverage any and all situations to produce belief, trust, and faith in himself. And he will allow suffering and difficult circumstances to do that. If you're going through a set of similar circumstances, I think Martha and Mary relate to your pain here. And Jesus, in verse 21 and later in verse 32, Jesus finally shows up. 
And Martha runs out to him and says, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. But how many times have we said this to God just in different wording? God, if you were here in my pain and my grief, this wouldn't have happened. If you showed up in my finances, in my marriage, or when I was trusting you for physical or emotional healing, I wouldn't have walked away from you. Perhaps Paul's words in 2 Corinthians gave you temporary comfort in his exchange with God. He's pleading with the Lord for a physical ailment to be removed. But the Lord replies, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And even in your situation, even that answer would have been okay. Because at least God said something. But in your case, God is seemingly silent. God, if you had shown up or even spoke, my faith would have been different. If you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. So to recap our story so far, we have Jesus show up and Martha tell Jesus that she's disappointed with him and even blames him for her brother's death. But I love Jesus' reply to Martha in verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? In verse 27, yes, Lord, she replies. I believe that you are this Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Jesus reminds her here to keep her disappointment within a framework of reverence for who he is. That it's okay to be upset with God, but keeping that frustration within a context of, I can trust you anyways. Because too many times in our life we justify walking away or being upset with God, sinning in our anger, in the midst of hardships, as opposed to leaning in, in the wake of disappointment. That even though life is seemingly falling apart at the seams, and I don't have much faith to hang my hat on, what little faith I have, I give to you. Now we see in the story Martha still fully trusting and even finding hope in who Jesus is, even though he allowed her brother to die. Because God is forever building in you in me into strong Christians who can persevere against hardships, who can sustain hope through tragedy, and can even lift others up by our example and our compassion. In verse 35 and verse 36, we see an amazing example of Christ-like compassion in the midst of a situation in which he allowed. And that verse is Jesus wept. And today, I want to remind you that, that God's heart, in the wake of your tragedy, God's heart is broken for your pain. He takes no delight in the chastising process, but allows us to endure it because the end result is worth it. 
In verse 35, when it says Jesus wept, Jesus pauses to feel our humanity, to feel the weight of heartbreak, of death, of disappointment. He understands our burden. Even knowing what's in store for us, he pauses to allow grief to come to his heart. I want to look at this word, wept. It wasn't that Jesus simply maybe had a tear that they thought they saw. He had to put some visine in real fast to make this thing seem believable. No, it was publicly noted, and the Jews that were there said, see how much he loved him. For the parents in the room today, I think you'll understand this concept more than most. That we allow our children to go through difficulty or a diff- difficult circumstances to produce a beneficial outcome. You gain no joy, you gain no satisfaction from the process, but it's worth it. To continue this theme, we even see God the Father sending his own son whom he greatly loved, to be put to death in the most excruciating way possible so that we might have a right relationship restored as a result. God fine-tunes all he loves to gain a desirable outcome, but receives no pleasure from the suffering. Here we see Jesus' heart being broken For their pain. And in the same way, God breaks. God's heart breaks for your pain too. As we see Jesus weeping, we gain an understanding of how us Christians need to comfort each other. My prayer is that we be people who learn how to balance grief and comfort with encouragement and eternal hope. Because too often we tend to be too far on one side of things only offering comfort when hope is needed is simply inadequate and vice versa. We like to say the cookie-cutter fortune lines in which the faith often gives, but we don't just allow ourselves to be grieved and be burdened with their troubles. Brother or sister, I'm willing to come alongside you, allow my heart to be troubled, to share in your burden but not without reminding you of the eternal hope which gives us strength to keep putting one foot in front of the other and to keep moving forward. This action will result in God leveraging situations not only to create unity with himself, but also with each other. And guys, if you don't have friends in your life that can frame difficult situations with a godly perspective, then I need to encourage you to get involved in a home group, to get involved in a life group, and surround yourself with people who actively and invest and are committed to your relationship with the Lord. A perfect example of this is Alex Tkach. And Alex isn't here, but you know he'll, he'll hear it later. But Alex and I have been good friends for a while, and frequently we work out together. And Alex shows a dedication for my well-being even when I don't. There's days when I feel like don't, when I, those are, on the days when I don't feel like going to the gym, he's driven to my house, slapped the ice cream cone out of my hand, picked me up, put me in the car, kicking and screaming the whole entire way, and driven me to the gym. And guys, it just doesn't stop there. Once I'm at the gym, he pushes me to work harder, 
even lifting the weight for me when I can't anymore. This correlation I'm showing here is that we need friends like this in our spiritual lives too. That I'm growing, I'm getting results here, but I'm not going to do it alone. You're coming with me. We need to be involved in each other's lives, to get involved into small groups or a home group, because Satan looks to divide us and isolate us so that he can conquer us. But when we surround ourselves with godly community, we allow somebody else to lift the weight for us when we can't anymore, when we're not willing to anymore. To frame a perspective, a difficult perspective, in a godly circumstance. Those people in our lives will always point us towards seeing the glory of God, even when the going gets hard. As we get back to the text, we see through the whole story that Jesus was willing to leverage death and tremendous grief to produce and build greater faith in us so that we may trust in him more. And they might have a stronger faith and further see and exemplify his glory through our stories. In verse 40, Jesus said to him, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? Then Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb and raises him back to life. And you know, oftentimes without knowing the result in which these trials produce in our lives, the pain seems almost intolerable. But simply knowing that God allows and even permits these things to happen to build unity and create trust with himself is only the tip of the iceberg. Understanding the purpose and results for these sufferings is the key to enduring and weathering all of life's storms and sticky situations. James really hits the nail on the head when he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, that it may be mature, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This verse in James 1, 2 through 4 is an invitation to experience God and encounter his faithfulness while being matured to the image of his son in the process. This is the reason we rejoice in our hardships and find comfort during those circumstances. If we look at this in terms of trials of many kinds, I want to look at that term. Trials of many kinds, it's such an all-encompassing statement, whether it's hardships, Difficulties financially, difficulties relationally, in the home, in our marriage. Maybe our kids didn't turn out the way we were hoping. Those long bouts of singleness, the wrestling with loneliness, depression and discouragement, the unfavorable doctor's report, our friend becoming terminally ill and even passing away. All of these things, and if I forgot any, they're included under James's all-encompassing statement, trials of many kind. All of these things produce the endurance in which we're looking for. But whatever you're facing today, 
I want you to find hope that God is forever building you and me into strong Christians who can persevere against tragedy and sustain hope through difficulties even though God might be silent. Because he is working in and through the mess for his glory to be put in display, on display in our lives so that we may lift others up by our example and our compassion. And I want to clarify that it's not that we're rejoicing in the situation itself. Thank God my brother died so that God can do something amazing. What we are rejoicing in here is the results, the relationship, and the transformation that occurs in the process of those situations. If we read back to James, I love this idea of testing of our faith. And this isn't so that God knows where our faith is. Because he fully knows where our faith stands. It's not like God sitting back being like, man, I really hope he makes it through this. Good luck with that. And a perfect example is when we see in Job, Satan was just cruising through the world, comes up to God, and they were talking kind of back and forth. And, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan's like, yeah, I actually wanted to talk to you about that. You know, like you've given him a lot of things. No wonder why he likes you. And it wasn't that God got himself into hot water here. He's like, oh, Job, I kind of made a bet. I couldn't, couldn't really back up here. Got a little, you know, I got a little out of hand. I need you to come through on me for the, I need you to come through on this one for me. Now, God fully knows where our faith is at. So the testing of our faith is not so that God knows where we might stand, but it's so that we know where we stand. God is deepening our roots. He is thickening up our trunk that we might stand all the more boldly for his glory. God is building and strengthening endurance in us during these difficult moments and simultaneously producing a dependency and trust in himself in the process. We all have those people in our lives and those people that have this this bold faith in their walk with God. And although they have wisdom and biblical intellect, there's something about their faith that's so attractive and desirable. But we don't see the process in which that faith was formed in the individual. I love hanging out with Len Goth here. Right there, you're my man. And whenever I go over his house, we both have an affinity for the Discovery Channel. And on this show, there's, or on the Discovery Channel, there's a show called Gold Rush. And in this show, they're hunting for gold. You know, not too much creativity in the name there. But when they find it, it's honestly the most unimpressive thing you've ever seen. But they're cheering like crazy. They love it. And they pull it out and they they hold it up. And it's like, how is that even worth anything? But in the purification process, they heat it to a hot, hot heat until everything melts away and is polished significantly until the beauty of the gold is revealed. This refining fire is the process in which those who have that desirable type faith is revealed. When we meet these people, we are encountering, encountering a more polished product and we don't see the pain that they endured in the process. We don't see what was melted off or how hot things got in order to melt away those impurities. 
we just see the beauty. During the turmoil, we are heated to a hot heat so that all that remains in our life is the maturity and the completeness that is found in Jesus. And now he wants to take that and display it in our lives. We find hope in the end result, making the struggle worthwhile. Nike seemingly understands this principle when it coined the phrase, no pain, no gain. Because it's a long proven fact that pushing through pain produces some type of beneficial result. But, even, but oftentimes to arrive at that end goal, we encounter misery in the process. Like, I don't think there's a single person in here that would work out, that, that would push themselves to the limit without seeing real, tangible results. Like, I'm not going to engage in any type of self-discipline if there's no change. What drives me and what gives us motivation through the soreness and the fatigue is trusting that my long striving will produce results. That's our hope. We just celebrated Marathon Monday, and it's so interesting to hear the closing interviews from the elite runners who crossed the, the finish line. We watched them endure and almost seemingly effortlessly stride through Heartbreak Hill and cross the finish line, but what we're seeing there is the finished product. We don't see the hours of running, of grueling training, waking up early, the crazy diets, the fighting through injuries, the sacrifice in their professional and their personal lives, the breaking down of old habits so that new beneficial ones can be formed. The clinching of their teeth as they think to themselves just one more time, again and again and again. This is what the Lord is doing in our life. He is producing endurance through pain and suffering so that we can run this Christian race with vigor and strength. God is using our pivotal circumstances to transform you, to equip you, and even give you the understanding of how to comfort others while forging a trust relationship with himself in the process. How much do we press onward through the pain so that we achieve those greater results? There's a pastor in England, and, and he did some time in the U.S. and in Scotland as well before he was a traveling missionary named Alan Redpath. And Alan was no stranger to seasons of being refined and tested. During one of those periods, he said this. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. And I believe during this crushing process, we learn just as the sheep do to trust in the good shepherd's strength, power, provision, and protection, all the while developing an affinity for our caretaker in the process. The trust relationship is formed in difficult moments and will keep us by his side for the rest of our days. Alan continues saying, there is nothing, 
No circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first it has gone past Christ and past God right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with great purpose that we might not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, I lift my eyes up to him as I accept it coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my heart. No sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No circumstance will cause me fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is, the rest of victory. In this quote, Alan outlines a purpose and even a hope for our difficulties. But it goes far beyond that. Intertwined in this principle is an invitation to come know an all-loving, all-powerful God. To taste of his faithfulness and know that he is good. To trust in his strength and his provision for the rest of the days of your life. The Lord reminds us that he wants this type of relationship for him. This is why we are created to have an intimate relationship with this all-loving, all-powerful God. He reminds us by, when he speaks to the prophet Hosea when he was in the desert. And taking Hosea through this season of difficulties, through this season of dryness in the desert, he says, here you will no longer call me master, but husband. You will know me. Because that is what God is looking for through those desert seasons. God is forever building you and me into strong Christians who can persevere against all types of tragedy, heartbreak, and sorrow. And he will sustain our hope through difficulties, even though he might not seem that he is there, might seem that he is silent, he is carrying us. For he is building that relationship and working through the mess for his glory to be put on display in our lives so that we can lift others up by our example, which comes through the transformation process and our compassion by experiencing it. Creating a relationship with the Lord and following him for the rest of the days of our life. A relationship forged by fire Pain and suffering results in a trust of a loving and an all-powerful God. Perhaps you came in here today feeling discouraged, disappointment, or beat up. Maybe you feel that God hasn't shown up yet in your circumstance. He seems absent, distant, and you've had to fight this battle alone. Don't allow yourself to be isolated anymore. Please come talk with somebody. Fill out one of the cards in your bulletin. Get the hope and encouragement you need. And lastly, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you know that the words I spoke today, you know you need that comfort, you know you need that hope, we want to come talk with you and pray with you at the end of this sermon. And it's not that church people have all the answers, but as a church body, we've gone through a set of diverse 
circumstances that make us uniquely qualified to comfort and understand your pain. Our church is a place of imperfect people who find our comfort, joy, and righteousness in a perfect God. It's not through our strength in which we endure and persevere life's difficulties, but through his. And we come to know him more and make him known in the process. To him is the glory forever and always. Amen. The worship team is going to come up. Uh, we're going to sing a couple songs. And, um, and as Matt uh, said, if you want to pray with someone while the band is singing, while the congregation is